Please rise as you are able for the reading of today's gospel lesson from the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him in all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but to chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Brad, for reading our lesson this morning, and greetings to each of you in the name of our Lord and Savior. Uh, it is a joy to be with you on this second Sunday of Advent. It's hard to believe, uh, 17 days from the day, and we have much to look forward to, as was mentioned in our announcements. Uh, I want to say a special word of thanks to all who were a part of our youth choir last Sunday night uh, and afternoon. What a marvelous day and evening of worship that was and to our uh, liturgical dancers this morning who have now legalized running in church for us. Uh, we're grateful to them. Laura, for your prayer, uh, beautiful, beautiful toy uh, for your presence with us and, uh, and each of you. It is a great joy to be in this place of hope and peace. We're continuing our Advent series that we started last week entitled Expecting. Now just two and a half weeks from Christmas, for those of you who are counting. We started last week with the apocalyptic section of Matthew's narrative in chapter 24 with a message about expecting the unexpected. We said we don't really know when Christ is coming, only that He's coming. It's a promise. And so the posture of our lives, we are to live as those who have an unknown deadline, an indefinite due date. And Matthew gives us counsel that the way to live with an indefinite deadline is to live on ready. We use the scout motto, be prepared to live every day as though today is the day with a sense of expectancy, expecting God to answer our prayers, expecting God 
to show up in our worship, in our praise, in our study, in our fellowship, in our service, in our mission, and even in our chaos, expectancy. In the text this morning, it's also clear that God has some expectations for us. We don't always talk about God's expectations for us, more we underscore our expectations for God. But I want to talk about that for a few minutes with you on this second Sunday. Last week, we started with the end in mind. That's always a good place to start. But this morning, we're starting at the beginning. It's always been interesting to me that while two of the Gospels begin at the cradle, at the manger, all four Gospels trace the origin of the Gospel movement to a preacher in the wilderness who was a predecessor of the Messiah, a forerunner for the Christ, who was believed by the early church to be a fulfillment of Hebrew Scripture. Everything about him screams prophet. His location, his venue, his dress, his diet. Notice how Matthew says it, he appears in the wilderness wearing clothes that look like they came from a rummage sale, though certainly not from the Brentwood consignment sale. He's a vegan. He's eating bugs and honey, and he doesn't need a microphone to be heard. He has a single message. Most preachers really only have one message. They disguise it with different stories, but most of us have one theme, and here's his theme. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. By the way, isn't it interesting that John's message is very similar to that of Jesus? When you hear John preach, it sounds more like a tent revival than a temple homily because there's an urgency in his voice. There's a gravity in his demeanor that demands attention and demands response. Unlike typical preachers in his day, temple priests, he's not offering cliches and platitudes. He's spewing truth. In fact, he's speaking truth to power. This is what prophets do. They not only comfort the afflicted, they afflict the comfortable. It's what they do. They operate outside the political and social hierarchy. They are no respecter of pedigree nor of pecking order. That's why they're such a threat to the establishment, and that's why they don't live long. We were in Rouen in France not long ago, and I stood at the very place where the church burned Joan of Arc. She was 19. Martin Luther King was 39. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was 39. Prophets don't live very long. And to be sure, by chapter 11 in Matthew's gospel, Herod Antipas will be on to John and he will have his head. And when I read that, I fear that too much of my own preaching during this season is syrupy sweet. And John comes with vinegar on his lips, puts our teeth at edge. 
In essence, what Matthew is saying is that the preparation necessary for Advent is not about shopping, it's about repentance. It's an interesting word, isn't it? The Greek word for repentance, it's metanoia. It doesn't mean you feel sorry (laughs) for my sin, it means you turn away from sin. It means if you're going north and you know it's wrong, you turn and go south. You turn away from sin. You do a 180. You do a U-turn. U-turns are loud in the kingdom. A change of mind, a change of heart, a change of perspective always leads to a change of action. Repent. You know, it's no coincidence that in our baptismal liturgy, that the first question that we ask of the baptismal candidate is this, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and do you repent of your sin? I was reading the other day the work of Christian Smith. He's a professor of theology at Notre Dame. He writes that in our postmodern contemporary church, the two elements that seemed to be missing most from our lives of worship are adoration and repentance. And I thought of something C.S. Lewis once said. He said, Christianity has no message for those who do not realize we are sinners. If there is no sin, Jesus died for nothing. We need no grace. But Jesus has not come to make life better. He has come to make life different, to make it holy. And that was the preaching of John. And he was having an impact. (laughs) In fact, verse 5 says that the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. Some of us were there at the Jordan last February, and they were baptized there in the Jordan, as was Jesus, and they were confessing their sins, says Matthew. In fact, what's interesting about this story is that Matthew says it wasn't just the least and the lost and the last who were coming for baptism. It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees It was the religious leaders. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that there are four, in the first century, there were four philosophies, four denominations, if you will, within Judaism. The Pharisees were the lay religious scholars who were legendary for keeping the Torah, the written and the oral law. There were the Sadducees who were the elite temple professionals, the aristocracy of their day friendly with the government. There were the Essenes who withdrew from the city, who were anti-temple. They were the ascetic community, monastic in nature, isolationists. And finally, there were the Zealots who were the anarchists. They were the religious revolutionaries who were ready at any moment to take up the sword against the Roman occupation. But the two largest denominations in the first century were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and frankly, they had the positional authority and they had the influence. 
And here's where it really gets interesting. (laughs) When this fiery preacher saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming out, he was a little bit skeptical. I'm understating. He was a little bit skeptical. You can see it in the way he addressed them. How did he speak to them? Hey, you bunch of snakes. John was a very timid preacher. Vipers, poisonous, venomous. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Is it any wonder that John had to find a pulpit in the wilderness? If he'd been a Methodist, he'd have had a string of one-year appointments all across the Tennessee conference. Why is he so harsh? Because he knew their intent. He knew their motive. They're not coming out. The religious leaders were not coming out to get in the water. They were coming out to scrutinize John, to probe this preacher In fact, they weren't coming of their own volition. They had been sent, and they may even wade in the water for show, but they have no intention of changing, and John knows it. And that's why he says in verse 8, bear fruit, talking to the religious leaders, bear fruit that is worthy of your repentance, and don't think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For God is able to raise up from these stones sons and daughters of Abraham. Now, I don't have to tell you, but those words in the ears of the religious institution, fighting words. In a culture like the first century where honor is based on bloodline and descent, those are fighting words. But what John is saying is, listen, It's not the soil you come from that matters. It's the fruit that you bear. Heritage is important. I'm grateful for heritage, but it's not enough. Because for the gospel, it's not about ethnic roots. It's about ethical fruits. Bear fruit that befits repentance. In other words, it's not just about belief, it's behavior. Behavior is belief with clothes on it. It's not just confession, it's conduct. And what's interesting to me is this is thematic in Matthew's gospel. You remember how Jesus closed out his sermon on the mount? That was a reinterpretation of the pharisaical law. He said, and I quote, Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he or she who does, does the will of my Father. In other words, what John is asking is, where's the fruit? Brennan Manning, who wrote this wonderful uh, book called The Ragamuffin Gospel, said the temptation of this age is to look good without being good. And boy, did that ever get Jesus in trouble. Because like John, he told it, Matthew 23, verse 5, when he saw the Pharisees, he said, listen, they do all their deeds in order to be seen by men. Is it any wonder that they put him on a tree? He was 33 when they crucified him. 
Now, I love Luke's version of this scene. If you flip over to Luke chapter 3, Luke doesn't cite the religious crowd that came. He cites three groups that came for baptism. The crowds, that is the general populace, the tax collectors, and soldiers. Three groups. And when they heard John's message, they asked, what must we do? And John told them. To the crowds, he said, if you've got two jackets in your closet, give one to somebody that doesn't have one. And do the same thing with your groceries, he said. To the tax collectors, he was very specific. Faith, repentance means doing something. Stop cheating people. Cut out the surcharges and kickbacks and collect only what the law requires. And even the soldiers, he said, stop your brutality. Stop your bullying. Stop the shakedowns and be content with your rations. That's interesting. It's so practical. John's preaching. He doesn't say quit your job and go to seminary. He doesn't say start a coup against the Roman government. He doesn't even say buy yourself a camel hair suit and start preaching. He says use whatever station you have in life for the benefit of somebody else in need and not just for you. That's the fruit of repentance. That's the necessary preparation for the coming king. Indeed, John says that when the wind and fire come, I think that may be Pentecost, Christ himself will empower you by his spirit to produce that kind of fruit. And then Paul gives us a little glimpse, a window into what it would look like. The fruit of the spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he doesn't just want me to have one of those. He wants me to have the whole fruit basket. And it starts with repentance. I'd love to have a sign out front of the church that says, U-turns are allowed. In fact... They are required. I remember something Billy Sunday once said. Billy Sunday, who was the 20th century uh, evangelist, early 20th century, said this. The trouble with so many of us is that we've got just enough religion to make us miserable. If there is no joy in life, you've got a leak in your Christianity. Teilhard de Chardin said it like this, the infallible proof of the presence of Christ is joy. I know we lit the peace candle. Joy is not till next week, but I can't wait. The joy of the Lord is our strength and just the thought of his coming turns our mourning into gladness. We saw it last Sunday afternoon, didn't we? We enjoyed the youth concerts in the narthex. They did three times. I don't know how you did three, but you did three. Sherry and I came at 3.30 for the first concert. We went home. We had dinner. We changed clothes. And about 6.30, I went and grabbed my keys and my wallet. And she said, where are you going? I said, I can't wait a whole year to hear that again. (laughs) I got to hear it 
one more time. And oh, I can't, the joy that comes when you see those young people in that room with their candles singing the gospel on the world. And nothing is any better than hearing Andrew Byers sing the genealogy of Matthew. And Ella Miller and Caroline Meyer that I called the pips who sang with him. The cry of Advent is to bear fruit that looks like the change. A changed life mirrors a changed heart. And it all begins with repentance. And it ends with joy. Let me share one example, and I'm finished. I think I've shared this story before a few years ago, but it bears repeating. Flannery O'Connor wrote a story, a short story called Revelation. It's the tale of a woman named Mrs. Ruby Turpin. She was the overbearing spouse of a pig farmer in the South. She was an appalling racist, always cubbyholing others, white and black and rich and poor, according to her own elaborate sliding scale of bigotry. And worst of all, Miss Ruby viewed her fondness for distinction as a great virtue, as if it was a spiritual gift. One day, Miss Ruby was sitting in the waiting room of a doctor's office, expressing her gratitude aloud for all to hear that she was neither black nor poor when suddenly she was assaulted by a young special needs girl who hit Miss Ruby smack dab in the middle of her forehead with a book appropriately called Human Development. And the child called her a warthog from hell. The experience shook her world, Miss Ruby. She perceived The attack is more than a deranged act of a stressed teenager. She saw it as a message from God. When she got home, she she stomped out to the shed, picked up her hose, and started watering down her pigs, fussing at God all the time. What right did God have to suggest that she, an upstanding citizen, was a warthog from hell? As her husband was out of earshot, Ruby looked up into the sky and just fussed at God. Why did you send me a message like that for? How can I be a hog and me too? How am I saved and from hell? And suddenly, Miss Ruby had a vision. Flannery O'Connor says maybe it was a bump on her head, but maybe not. She saw a ladder in the sky on which the people were ascending to heaven and they were walking together in the groups that she had placed them in. And Miss Ruby noticed that she and those like her were bringing up the rear of the procession. They were the last behind all those that she had despised all her life. And they were singing. Though Ruby noticed that her group was the only one on key. Sometimes the things that I need to be purged from are precisely those parts that I'm most proud of. Even things that we might consider strengths and virtues can become vices. 
And so the pre-Christmas gift for this long-awaited Messiah is repentance. A gift to cleanse and purify from all that would keep us from falling on our feet when he comes in glory. And so it was for Miss Ruby, and so it is for us. Why in the name of John the Baptist would God require such a gift? It's so un-Christmassy. Well, the clue is in Miss O'Connor's story. She concludes her tale by mentioning the name of the young girl who threw the human development book at Miss Ruby in the doctor's office. Can you guess what her name was? Grace. Her name was Grace. A bump on the head can sometimes lead to a repentant heart and a changed life. The confessing of my sin and brokenness may leave a mark, but it's a mark of grace. What must we do? I think you know. And when you do it, when you do it, you will know the peace and joy that only Christ can give. And your fruit will match your roots. May it be so. Amen.